Hey everybody, it's Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and a whole lot more. If you are a subscriber, thank you for that. And yes, we did skip an episode last week. Life, you know, it's a busy time right now and sometimes something's got to give, right? Anyway, for any of you who are new to this podcast, welcome. We started this big, long conversation of ours a few years back after uh, my book came out, Common Sense Pregnancy. I still had a whole lot of information to share, and people started writing in and getting in touch about other aspects of parenting and prenatal care and feminism and politics and current events. People want to talk about it. So that's what we do here on the podcast. Seriously, it's, you know, all connected to our lives as parents and as women. And it's, it's good to have this spot where we can connect those dots. Oh, happy holidays to all of you. This episode will go live Christmas week. And I know a lot of you are really busy getting ready. For some of you, this will be your first Christmas with a baby in the house. Lucky. Maybe it's your first time Santa-ing. And I just feel so happy for you. I I really think that, you know, building traditions into your family, creating family rituals, it's just really just about the loveliest reason why we have holidays, right? And, you know, what's really great about your first, you know, Christmas as a family is that you get to do the things that make it the holidays for your family, you know, not just the family you were born into and, you know, but the one you're creating by bringing your own children into the world. You know, lately I've been having so many conversations with women who are kind of looking at the holidays differently this year. Um, there's just been so much talk about women's roles and men's roles. And they're taking a look at the holidays and saying, wow, there's a reason why I feel so stressed out every year. It's because I'm doing too much. Women are the ones in most families who make the holidays happen. Not every family, I know, but in a lot. It's the women who do the planning, shopping, wrapping, shipping, baking, cooking, decorating, etc. They do it, you know, for themselves, for their husband's families or their partner's families. They do their children's shopping, maybe their parents' shopping. Women do the holidays. But if you're just new in your family, you know what? Be mindful of that. You don't really have to do it all. Your partner is a capable human being too and could totally be responsible for doing at least half. Especially if you've got a brand new baby and you're the mama, your partner can do more than half this year. Seriously, if you start out doing everything for everyone and being, you know, the the queen of Christmas who gets it all, it does everything, you're going to wind up being overwhelmed, overloaded, and resentful. Scale it back. Share the load. Do the things you really enjoy doing. And the things that you kind of have to do because they're obligations, do them with your partner. I, I also think... A lot of families are also going lighter on the gift giving this year. And there's a a deeper focus on teaching children about charity and about uh, the joy of giving and giving back. There's just so many families and children who are hurting this year, you know, whether that's because of the fires, the border problems, illnesses, stress, whatever. 
a lot of families are going through a lot this year and families are turning their attention to giving more to those in need than they are about, you know, filling their children's already bulging toy boxes. Building charity into your holidays is another really important tradition. It teaches children about the joy of giving. And seriously, what feels better than that? Nothing. So for those of you who are getting close to your due date during this holiday season, I wrote an article real long time ago that just I just pulled up again on Parents Magazine. It's titled, The Beauty of Giving Birth Over the Holidays. Missing out on the Christmas roast isn't the only reason people stress about the possibility of giving birth over the holidays. A common question, do hospitals schedule nurses based on seniority? And if so, does that mean only new hires work Christmas? My answer, nope. Everybody on staff takes their turn to work the holidays, so you can expect the same mix of new and seasoned nurses to be on your delivery unit if you go into labor. Here's how it goes at the hospitals where I've worked. Several months before the holiday season starts, nurses put in their requests for which holidays they want off and which they want to work. I put wor- <clears throat> excuse me, I put want in quotes because many of us would prefer not to work the holidays. If you work Christmas one year, you can anticipate giving getting the next year off, but you'll probably work Thanksgiving. Sometimes nurses swap shifts or find someone willing to work a few of their hours at the beginning or end of their shift so they can spend part of the holiday at home. Even though most hospitals offer premium pay for working holidays, many nurses would still rather stay home. But that's the nature of the business. Hospitals stay open. Women have babies at all hours of the day and night. Every day of the year. Babies. Geesh. They have no consideration for other people's Christmas plans. That doesn't mean some nurses don't love working holidays, and not just for the extra money. There's some magic about the births that happen on holidays. There's a special sense of glad tidings on the unit that takes the sting out of missing your own families, and there's a special bond that forms with the co-workers you spend the shift with. Over the years, your co-nurses, technicians, and assistants become more than colleagues, They're your sisters, friends, and work spouses. The people you know will have your back if a birth turns sour or a shift turns crazy. And when a holiday shift is mellow and the babies are sweet and healthy, you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere else with the same kind of magic. Maybe there was a bit of that magic in a manger somewhere long ago. So, if your labor starts on a holiday, don't worry that you'll be attended by brand new nurses or resentful staff. Know that you will be cared for by a team of professionals who, over the years, have become a family. Know that they consider working the holiday a form of service that they're honored to provide. Sure, they wish they were with their kids or husbands or parents, but your nurses, doctors, midwives are also honored to be spending the holiday with you, welcoming your new baby into your family. Happy holidays. Let's take a fast break. Okay, we're back. So last week, we answered an email from a guest who had questions about her placenta, which she found out was bilobar, and about the interventions her doctor is recommending uh, when she gets closer to her due date because of that. We talked it all through with both an OBGYN and a midwife, and we got a couple of different perspectives. Well, this week, we're still talking about placentas because another listener emailed about her placental problem, and she recommended that we do an episode. I thought that was a darn good idea. So that's what we're doing this week. We're talking more about placentas. 
Uh, before we get to that, though, there's some good news on the political front. Um, some really important maternal health bills were approved in the House and Senate this week, and now they're on their way to the president's desk to be signed into law. Um, let's see, the Improving Access to Maternity Care Act, which improves the geographic distribution of uh, maternity care in underserved rural and inner city areas. Uh, that one passed the Senate, and we need to thank Senator uh, Tammy Baldwin and Representative Michael Burgess for introducing that bill. Thank you. Uh, let's see, they also passed the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act in the Senate. And that was Senator Heidi Heidkamp and Senator Shelley Moore Capito who moved this on forward. Um, and let's see, the Women's Economic Empowerment Act passed the Senate too. It's been a good week for women on Capitol Hill. Now, they all have to go to the president to sign. So, okay, President Trump, balls in your cart. We're hoping you'll sign these bills and take action to make really important improvements in maternal health care for American women. Um, Let's see. Maybe we'll take another real, real quick break here, and then we'll come on back and answer this week's email. All righty. Let's answer this week's email. Corey writes, Hi, Jeannie. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and I thank you for all of your insight when it comes to pregnancy and birth. I was released from the hospital yesterday after a bleed on Monday, thanks to my, thanks to my complete placenta previa. I was diagnosed with the previa at my 20-week appointment. As of yesterday, I am 25 weeks and just praying this baby will keep cooking as long as possible. When I first learned about the previa, I did a quick search and couldn't find a, pon a podcast you had done on it. I know it's not the most common condition, but I thought I would let you know that a longtime listener of yours was looking for some more information on this. You probably don't want to unnecessarily freak people out by speaking on this condition, but there is a lot of talk about preeclampsia, and I have never been anywhere close to having high blood pressure. So I have to believe there are some women like me out there that could learn more about their previa from you. As a side note, I feel very lucky to be in the position I am in. My mother is a retired labor and delivery nurse. To say that I had the VIP treatment during my stay would be a complete understatement. She chose all my nurses and has my midwife and now my maternal fetal medicine doctor on speed dial. I just hope you can offer some similar comfort to someone in my situation that may not have all the tools or knowledge I have right now. Thank you for your consideration, Corey. Oh, Corey, that was a great letter. And, you know, we talk about placentas here and there on the podcast, but you're right. We haven't done one where we really, um, you know, kind of go deep just on that. So that's what we're going to do today. And um, let's get our favorite midwife, Chris, on the line. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hi, Jeannie. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Doing okay. So everybody knows who you are by now, but I always ask it anyway. So this week, who are you and what do you do? Uh, I am Chris Beard. I'm a nurse midwife in Portland, Oregon. We're working for an HMO, and I've been a midwife for 25 and a half years. Hospital-based Hospital midwife? Wife. I did have a short stint at a birth center, but the bulk of my career has been in a hospital. There you go. So the reason I wanted you to come back on, um, other than the fact that I just like having you on the podcast every now and again, is that I got an email from a listener 
Um, you know, last week we talked about Whitney's bilober placenta. And coincidentally, right around that same time, I got a listener from an email who has a placenta previa. And um, she says she's currently 25 weeks and recently released from the hospital after a bleeding episode caused by a complete placenta previa. And she's worried about her baby staying put until closer to her due date. Um, it sounds like she's really well plugged into the healthcare community with a midwife and a maternal fetal medicine specialist, plus an L&D nurse and her family. She also mentioned that she's been hearing a lot of concern about preeclampsia, though she doesn't have high blood pressure. And I think this listener is just, she's looking for more information and she wanted to help other listeners understand more about placental complications like hers. So maybe we should start with some real basics, right? Sure. Yeah. I think most women probably know what the placenta is, but let's give the down and dirty basic explanation. So the placenta is the specialized organ that supports your baby before it's born. It's the place where oxygen and nutrients are exchanged with the mother. And so a healthy placenta will grow a healthy baby and an unhealthy placenta mm -hmm. can lead to a small baby and some other complications. And it's on the inside lining of the uterus. And um, it's like this magical web of blood vessels between mom and baby. It's really remarkable. Yeah. So where is the placenta supposed to be inside the uterus? On a normal, healthy pregnant woman? On a woman? normal, healthy pregnant woman, anywhere but in front of the cervix is considered normal. It's a, um, it is where the placenta is located is uh, a factor of where the egg implants at the time that the egg implants. So some placentas are what we call fundal, which is at the top of the uterus. Some are anterior or in the front, some are on the side, and some are in the back. And really, unless your placenta is in front of the cervix, um, it's not that exciting where, it, where it's located because it does its job. Yeah. Yeah. We don't care. As long as it's not covering up the cervical Correct. opening. And the reason, and that's called placenta previa, meaning the placenta comes first before the baby. And the reason that that's a big, big problem is? Well, the cervix has to dilate to let the baby come out. And if the placenta is covering the cervix, when the cervix starts to open or dilate with contractions, whether they be just Braxton Hicks or preterm labor contractions or the real deal labor, then um, the bed, let's see, is that the right way to describe it? Where the placenta attaches is being undermined. And so you can have bleeding, bleeding so much that you, it, that it can be life-threatening. And before the days of ultrasound, um, we, I'm sure that many women with undiagnosed placenta previa um, had bad outcomes. Either they lost their babies or they lost their babies and they also died because it's a very serious complication of pregnancy. That's, that's fortunately quite uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of the placental complications that can kind of happen to any woman. Um, but what are some of the other things that women should be watching out for, especially during their first pregnancy? Um, you mean women with placenta previa or, or women in with, general? 
uh, women in general with placental complications? Or, you know, what are some of the things we want them to be watching for? So when you have when you have a known placental complication, you always want to watch for bleeding or spotting. And anytime you have bleeding or spotting, although bleeding or spotting can be common in pregnancy, we never call it normal. And if you know you have a placental problem, you should call your provider right away or contact them by email, whatever your um, method of contact is. Um, if you start having contractions that are um, that are early, you should definitely contact your provider. As always, if you feel like your baby's not moving, you should contact your provider if you know you have an unusual placenta. Um, you know, before the days of routine ultrasound, we didn't often know who had placental problems and we would rely on the clinical signs of bleeding or spotting in pregnancy, uh, measuring mm -hmm. smaller than they should when they came for their OB care and other signs that something was not quite right. But now that we have routine ultrasound, people are finding out very early that they have placental issues. And one of the most common things that I see is something called a low-lying placenta, which is typically discovered at the 20, 18 to 20-week ultrasound. And what that means is that the edge of the placenta is approaching the cervix and it's very, very close. And every institution uses a different definition for low-lying. And usually it's less than two centimeters from the opening of the cervix. Those kinds of placental issues quite often will resolve as the uterus grows and the pregnancy progresses. So someone who has a low-lying placenta at a 20-week ultrasound can go on to have a normal, a normal distance of, from, uh, from edge of placenta to cervix at the 28-week ultrasound or later in pregnancy, 32, 34, whenever they repeat that ultrasound. But placenta previa is different. I have not, in my experience, when I have a patient who has a complete placenta previa diagnosed on a 20-week ultrasound, that doesn't typically resolve because it really is smack over the cervix and it, it typically yeah. stays. And every institution will have a different um, threshold for um, how long people are hospitalized and when they're hospitalized for bleeding with a placenta previa. And in our setting, um, if you bleed if you bleed three times, you've just bought yourself a bed in the labor and delivery unit until your baby's born. So if you bleed yeah, once, yeah. you get hospitalized for, I, I can't, I'm not sure if it's three days, 72 hours or a little bit longer, because I'm not a maternal fetal medicine specialist. But, you know, if you mm -hmm. bleed. But it's a few days it's or a, a chunk, chunk of time. time. There. And, you know, you get yeah. two chances and it's kind of like three strikes, you're out. Three strikes, you're in, I guess. Yeah. Like, you're in. You're three, three strikes, you're an correct. inpatient. And what they yeah. do when you're yeah. an inpatient yeah. is they they evaluate you periodically throughout each shift. Are you contracting? Are you having any more bleeding? And how is your baby? And typically, I yeah. think they try to get people to 35 to 36 weeks before they do um, a primary cesarean section or a cesarean section. And that would not be considered an elective C-section. And most of the times, it's not an emergency unless you're having an active bleed, but it is a planned C-section because that's the only way your baby's yeah. going to come to the other side. Yeah, there really is no, other, no birth other birth option. option. This is one of those situations where we say, thank God for C-sections, because otherwise babies die and Correct. mothers bleed out. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And it can yeah. be, um, you know, there's some other lifestyle things that have to happen when you have a placenta previa during your pregnancy. 
you're supposed to not have intercourse and not have orgasms. And that can be hard on people. We call that pelvic rest. Um, and you know, people who have active jobs or who have toddlers that they're watching at home have to have a backup plan for what's going to happen if I start bleeding, who's going to take me to the hospital or who's going to watch my child while I get myself to the hospital. Right. Yeah. It's tricky. tricky. It's a tricky one. It's a tricky situation. And it sounds like your reader, your listener has the perfect team and a, a family member who has knowledge a midwife and a maternal fetal medicine person. Yeah, yeah, she sounds like she's set. Plus she has, you know, she she takes the initiative and does some of her own research and homework. So she's reaching out to get more information. And, you know, that's important. Yeah. So let's talk about how delivery methods, birth birth types of birth affect placentas and subsequent pregnancies. Specifically, after a C-section. So after a C-section, your uterus has a scar, as you know, and um, sometimes the placenta can implant over that scar. And if it implants over that scar, that can be a very serious situation. The placenta has um, blood vessels, and I think of them as roots, like the roots of a tree, that um, connect to the uterine muscle itself. And if those roots go through the scar or through the uterine muscle, if it's weak in any place, you can have something called a placenta accreta, which is um, where the placenta is embedded into the uterus, not just attached um, in a normal way. And placenta accreta is becoming more and more common as more people have more C-sections. Placenta accreta is also a life-threatening, potentially life-threatening complication of of pregnancy and the placenta. And it is um, something that is often not known before someone gives birth, how their placenta is attached. Yeah. And so... Yeah. You can't always see that on an ultrasound. And I think that there, again, we rely on our clinical judgment, you know, once a baby is born, we wait for signs that it's time for the placenta to be born as well. And those signs are usually a small gush of blood and um, a contraction in the uterus where the uterus kind of balls up and you can almost see it on someone who's nice and thin. And then the placenta is born, just Mm -hmm. comes right out. But if you don't see that gush of blood, or if you have a gush of blood, but no placenta, and you know, the person has had a C-section, um, placenta accreta has to be on your list of things that you're concerned about. And the only, um, you know, placenta accreta requires surgical intervention. And so pretty and, quickly. And pretty quickly. Yes. Before mom. Yeah. Because after the, you know, the baby is out of the uterus, then that uterus is just, you know, got a lot of open blood vessels. And yes. that's dangerous and, for mom. You know, so most... Many, many hospitals have very um, routine, very, very um, clear cut guidelines for what to do when there's postpartum bleeding. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so they give medications, they do uterine massage, they call the physician backup if it's not a physician attending the birth, they go to the operating room, they do um, a surgical procedure called the DNC, and then they just, they move through their checklist. And the bottom line is they want the bleeding to stop and they, they keep going until they get it to stop. And, 
you know, in the, in the rare and dangerous circumstances, people actually end up with hysterectomy if they have a placenta accreta. You know, you and I both been doing this for so long that when I started working in labor and delivery in the late eighties, early nineties, um, you heard about accreta, um, but you just didn't see it that often. It was really pretty unusual. Um, and then as the decades progressed and our C-section rate started climbing, I know that I started seeing way more instances of, you know, placental related hemorrhages and complications. And, um, it, it was a pretty, it seemed like a pretty direct correlation. I think that's what you would see if you looked at the research about, um, postpartum hemorrhage and placental complications is that, a lot of these things are directly related to C-section rates. And then in terms of our practice standards, you know, as, as nurses and midwives and obstetricians, then there was this period of time where the big focus was, um, you know, training us all on hemorrhage protocols. It was like a big, big deal. We all knew what to do before that, but none of us had been exposed to this level of emergency in our careers as we were at that point, you know, and, and continuing. And continuing is what I would say. And continuing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you, if you look at the maternal mortality data that's out there, so in other words, women who die of complications of childbirth, most of them are related to blood loss or a large portion. And sometimes it's acute blood loss, like blood loss at the time of the birth. And sometimes it's, um, sort of cumulative blood loss that no one was paying attention to. Yeah. Yeah. And both of those things can be related to abnormal placentas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we've said all the scary stuff, Chris. Um, let's kind of wrap this up with, uh, with talking to women about, okay. So, so our listener, our, our woman who emailed us, that who has the placenta previa and she's 25 weeks. She kind of knows what she's going to get into. She seems like she's in a really the very best possible situation. Um, what can women do to kind of prevent developing placental complications? Um, and, and I know with the first, you know, with the first baby, there's not a lot you can do. It's going to implant where it implants and grows where it grows. But with subsequent pregnancies, what do we want women to do and know? Well, I mean, I think avoiding that first C-section is really the the main. That's the key. That's the main thing. That is the primary thing you can do. And sometimes, you know, you have some impact and sometimes you don't have much impact on whether you get a C-section the first time or not. But I mean, you choose the right provider, you choose the right setting to give birth. And, you know, what somebody's C-section rate is a pretty important fact to find out about whoever you're choosing for your care. I mean, there's a big difference between somebody who has a 50% C-section rate and somebody who has a 10% C-section rate. Really big difference. Uh, And so, and it's a philosophical difference. Um, And and I think the WHO recommends a C-section rate of around 15%, which mm-hmm. most U.S. hospitals are, are considerably above that. But I would say that if you have the opportunity to look at the statistics for the hospitals in your town, 
you might want to choose the hospital that has the lowest C-section rate and then just take a look at the the people who are providing care in that setting. I mean, I have a bias that I think nurse midwives take the best care of normal pregnant women, but there are lots of great obstetricians out there that also give wonderful care to normal pregnant women as well. Um, But you want to look and see what their statistics are because it's a a mistake to assume if you go to somebody who has a 50% C-section rate, it's a mistake to assume that you're not going to be in that 50%. Right. So you want to go to somebody who has a who has a a good safety record and a low C-section rate and you want to just stay educated in your pregnancy about what's going on for you. Mm-hmm. I mean I don't I don't think you can pl- prevent a placenta previa, but I think you can uh you can control how you respond to it and I don't think you can necessarily prevent a placental abnormality once it's happened, but I think you can c- control how you respond to the challenges that come with that. Yeah. Does that make and sense? And for women, yeah, it does. It does. And for women who are listening to this saying, my placenta is just fine, um, you know, there that's great. And there's things that women can do to kind of, you know, boost the chances that their placenta is super healthy. Uh, I always like to tell women, even during the first trimester when you're feeling gross and all you want to do is lie on the couch, you still need to exercise because it helps build a healthy web of blood vessels in your placenta, you know, stuff like that. Common sense health information that we give every woman about eating right, don't smoke, you know, get exercise, get enough rest, decrease your stress. Take your prenatals, avoid all the toxics, all all that stuff. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it all can impact, you know, you, your baby and your placenta. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what else, Chris? Oh, oh, I wanted to ask you about post-birth placental traditions. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So some women keep it, they bury it, or they consume it. Correct. Most women, it just is disposed of as medical waste. And, you know, keeping it, burying it, or consuming it, are they all come from long-held traditions and rituals that we mostly don't uphold anymore. Um, But in some cultures, you know, it's pretty significant. Um, are there any modern day benefits to consuming the placenta, say in capsule form or anything like that? Um, I think the data is um, not there to, to prove that there is a benefit to consuming the placenta. When you look around in the mammal community, most mammals do consume their placenta. So it makes sense that it would be of some benefit to women. I know that many people consume the placenta um, to prevent postpartum depression. And, um, I think that, um, for people who want to, want to undertake that, uh, endeavor, I think it's totally fine. I'm not sure myself whether it really does help with postpartum depression, but I don't think there's a risk to doing it. So I say, if that's what you want to do, you do it. Mm -hmm. I know that there's, that there are many, um, at least where we live in Portland, Oregon, there are a lot of people who do placental encapsulation. And we have, you know, our hospital has people who are taking their placentas home, just sign a form that says they're taking them home um, because it is otherwise considered medical waste. And I never ask why people are taking it home. I just let them do what they need to do. I know. Remember when it used to be a big old administrative hassle? You had to get lots of signatures. You had to get permission from the powers that be. 
I mean, it was the woman's until, you know, she delivered it from her body. And then all of a sudden it was the hospitals to decide what to do with. Right. That wasn't cool. No. And so what I usually do, what I usually ask patients when I'm finishing up with a birth is I say, are you taking your placenta home or are you leaving it with us? And so I know that I have to, whether I have to sign the form or not. Um, I know yeah. several people who um, planted their placentas either with a tree or a rose bush or um, another. Yeah, that used to be real common. It used to be real common. And in fact, my sister planted her first baby's placenta under a tree. And when they moved, they had the tree moved to their new house. Wow. Because that tree was huh. really important to them. Yeah. So, so what about, um, you know, keeping the placenta attached to the baby and then some families kind of just, they keep it until it falls off. They keep it attached to the baby, like wrapped up together. That seems to be a a practice that is, um, becoming more popular. I haven't personally had anyone do that in my practice, but I'm sure my time is coming. And I think probably the rationale behind that is, that you want the baby to get all of the stem cells that are in that placenta. And mm-hmm. um, it's the same thing is accomplished um, by delayed cord clamping, which is, you know, waiting to clamp the cord until the pulsations stop. Um, and I, I, I think it sounds like it'd be kind of hard to do carry around a baby and a placenta for a few days until it dries up and falls off. But, you know, yeah. I don't think there's anything harmful or dangerous in that practice. And if that's what families want to do, I would support that. It would, I would have to think about the logistics of how to make that happen, but. Oh, there's industries around it now. Oh, there are. Yeah. There are like slings and stuff. I was going to say, is there a placental pouch? Something like that. There is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know. I know. So do you think, you know, like thousands and thousands of years ago, women did that? I would suspect that they did not. Because you think about thousands and thousands of years ago, women, um, you, they were living kind of in the raw, in the wilderness, and anything that smells like blood would attract predators, yeah. I would imagine. So my guess would be no, but I'm not an anthropologist. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just a pondering. Just yeah. a pondering, yeah. Chris. Yeah. yeah. Well, what else do you think that women need to know about placentas? They are magic. They are, they yeah. are, they are a magic thing and they are, I would encourage you to look at your placenta after your baby is born. Um, you know, you look at the maternal side and you look at the fetal side and really if you see pictures of a normal healthy placenta, it looks like a tree and people call it the tree of life for a reason. And yeah. I think it's a fascinating organ that doesn't get enough credit. I mean, they're not, they're kind of ugly when they just plop out into the bowl after the baby comes out, but they really are a magical organ. Yep. Our only disposable body organ. Yes. Yeah, I know. Women's bodies are cool. They are. They are cool. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you for helping us better understand placentas. It's always fun to talk to you. Me too. I, I really enjoy being on your podcast and I'm happy to talk about placentas. They are great. Do you want to do you want to answer our our last two questions? Sure. I have you on so often that, you know, I'm always kind of intrigued to see if you have a different answer. Okay. So, is it a test? Fill in the bl- Yeah, it's a okay, test. Good. It's a hard one too. Okay. It's one you've never taken before. Okay, good. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Fill in the blank again. Nobody ever told me that. 
uh, birth and midwifery would be so political. Ooh, baby. Nailed it. Okay. Where are you in the world of motherhood right now? In the world of motherhood, I have a teen who is rapidly turning into a young adult in the world, and I have a, a young teen. I have a 16 and a half and a 13 and a half year old. And so in the world of motherhood, um, I am navigating the college discussion and search. And I'm also navigating um, the transition from middle school to high school coming up. You're in the meat, meat in the middle. I, I am in the meat. And I have a, one of my oldest and dearest friends told me a long time ago, little people, little problems, big people, big problems. And yes, I don't so have very true. many big problems, but I would definitely agree with that. And yeah, I, the consequences are bigger. Yeah. And, you know, when your children are small and, um, you know, they need you all the time, constantly, they're tugging on your leg to be picked up or they want to eat or whatever. You just think, oh, God, I can't wait till they're bigger because they're not going to need me this much. I just need a yeah. break. And the truth is, they actually need you more, whether they recognize it or not. Right. So my hands right. on mothering right now is... I would say it's an octave higher than it was when my kids were younger. Yeah. Good job, Chris. Thanks. You got to keep your, you got to keep your eyes open. Yeah. They need us. They do. Yeah. They do. Yeah. All right. Well, Hey girl, we'll talk again soon down the road. Sound good? Always, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. You betcha. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. That's it for 2018, folks. We'll be back in 2019 with more new episodes. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this year. And happy holidays to you and yours. Our guest today was Chris Beard, Certified Nurse Midwife. You can learn more about me and this podcast and the work I do over at jeanfaulkner.com. You can find my book and help me make it the book to buy when you find out you're pregnant. Just go wherever books are sold, Amazon, Target, your local bookstore, my website, anywhere. Pick up a copy of Common Sense Pregnancy. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk again in 2019. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is part of the Parents On Demand Network, a curated collection of podcasts all about pregnancy and parenting. If you like my podcast, you'll probably like Newbies, too. Newbies is another one of Parent On Demand Network's collection. Give a listen here. The wait is over and your new baby is here. But it didn't come with an instruction manual. That's why there's Newbies, an audio podcast guiding new mothers through their baby's first year of life. Listen as newly postpartum moms celebrate the excitement of becoming new parents and share the emotional and physical struggles of recovering from childbirth and caring for a newborn baby. Newbies is part of the Parents on Demand Network. Look for our free network app in Apple and Android to discover more great parenting shows and listen to your favorite episodes on the go.